Amen. Please be seated. And if you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn with me to the book of Hebrews or the passages printed in your bulletin. And if that's not enough, it should be displayed on the wall in just a moment. Uh, we are in week 18 of considering the sermon letter of what we call the book of Hebrews. Hebrews was written by an anonymous author. We don't know his name. We don't know specifically to whom he was writing, but they are identified as the Hebrews. These are a people familiar with the Jewish way of life. And he's writing to them pastorally, we've seen each week, to shepherd them as some of them were considering abandoning their faith in Jesus. They were tempted, they were pressured to the point of considering maybe it would be easier to go back to the Hebrew faith, the Hebrew way of worship, because it's costly to worship as a Christian. It's costly to follow Jesus. And because of that pressure, because of that concern, he writes this letter to them, reminding them of gospel truth, of who Jesus is, that he is superior to everything they knew when they worshiped as Hebrews, that he is the fulfillment of every shadowy type and figure of worship that they had practiced. And he warned them that if you do not persevere in faith, you will abandon your inheritance. You will drift away into unbelief, into what is called apostasy. So it is a pastoral letter of warning and of concern about a real threat. A threat that continues to this day for every one of us. That we must persist in our faith in Jesus, even when the culture makes it difficult even when it turns on you and threatens you and puts you at risk, maybe of being canceled. We persevere in our faith in Jesus because it's true. It's all true. Last week, we heard the author stress the necessity of embracing Jesus as the one true atoning sacrifice for sin. That if you were to let go of Him, you were to let go of everything. Because He is more than the shadowy types of Old Testament ritual. That Jesus is the actual holy sacrifice. The one holy sacrifice who can atone for man's sin problem. Now this morning we move on in chapter 10 to verses 19 to 25. And here, the author is going to repeat himself yet again, and he's going to conclude his case, the case of his argument. And he's going to conclude it with concrete application for his hearers to apply, and we would be included as those hearers. His case that you're going to hear is this. We have in Jesus a great high priest... And his application is this. Because that's true, we should therefore do some things in response to the fact that we have a great high priest. So what is it that we have and what is it that we ought to do? Give your attention to Hebrews chapter 10, 
verses 19 to 25. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain, that is, His body, And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess. For he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. Let's pray for God's help in understanding His Word. Lord Jesus, we need You to be our teacher this morning. We need You to be our preacher of our text. And so, Lord, would You, by Your Spirit, be very present in this place, attending to Your Word, showing the truth of it, and applying it to us. Lord, would You show us what we have. And Lord, would you spur us in that truth that we would persevere in our faith to the very end. We ask this and we pray it together. In Jesus' name, amen. So this morning, a key word you may have picked up on that is a theme in really all the scriptures that we've heard, songs that we've sung, and now in our text from Hebrews A key word is confidence, assurance. What I'm titling this morning is gospel confidence. That God's people have confidence of the good news that He's given us in His Word. And so anytime you talk about confidence, I suppose it's good to talk for a moment about a lack of confidence. A lack of assurance. Or maybe false confidence and false assurance. So it was years ago, I think by my math, it's coming up on about 30 years ago. Um, I had graduated from college, from Clemson University, was serving as a youth director in a church outside of Atlanta, Georgia. I was about 22 years old. And as I thought about this story this week, I shuddered at some of these truths. Uh, But as a 22-year-old in my first year out of college, I was to help chaperone and take the youth to Mexico on a mission trip. Now, thankfully, I was not the lone adult in charge of this trip. We had some part-time missionaries in our church that were, that were really chaperoning this trip, as I, I suppose, as I think back on it. Surely that's what was happening. But I remember them telling us, everybody's got to have a birth certificate to get through the airport, Right? And imagine taking, I think it was about 20 kids to the airport in Atlanta and getting them safely to Mexico. 
and, and I was driving a van. That alone is scary to me now, thinking back to who I was as a 22-year-old. And then getting them to Mexico and being in Mexico for a week. Whew. But it was made very clear. You've got to have a birth certificate. Everybody. And so I'm the youth director telling the, the children, the youth, get your birth certificate. Don't you be the one that when we get to the airport, you mess this up and slow us down, right? So, of course, I would not be the one to make a mistake there. I mean, that would, that would be exactly what happened. So, like any 22-year-old, I didn't know what to do. So, in preparation for the trip, I called my mom. Mom, I need a birth certificate. Can you send me my birth certificate? Of course I'll send you your birth certificate. So she goes through the file, all the family heirlooms. She sends me the birth certificate. I got full confidence, full assurance that I've got my ducks in a row. It's not going to be me that messes up this trip. So we go to the airport to, uh, boy, that busy, busy airport. And we're, we're trying to get on a plane. And I'm asked to present my birth certificate. And I boldly and confidently did. Here is my birth certificate. And the person who had the job of screening everyone says, no, 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 this is not, this is not a birth certificate. And I was so confident that it was because I showed her where it said on the piece of paper, certificate of birth. And did you know that a birth certificate and a certificate of birth are not the same thing? Well, this 22-year-old did not know. So apparently that was a hospital certificate of birth. And, and I remember them saying, it, your birth certificate has to have a seal on it. Well, this birth certificate, this certificate of birth did have a seal on it. It was this glossy, shiny sticker with a ribbon on it. But it was not a birth certificate. It did not have authority. It was not real. Now here's the, I'll, I'll conclude all that with this. In thinking about that story that's, I think, right at about 30 years old, close to it. I have no recollection of what happened from that moment on. <laughs> but I know this. I got on the airplane with those youth and I spent the week in Mexico. And the only way it makes sense in my head um, is that it was pre-9-11. And, and, and I think they just let me go. Maybe, maybe the driver's license worked. I, I don't remember what the rules were. How I got on that plane, I do not know. But I, I want you to know, I had full confidence and assurance that I had done everything right, even down to the language of certificate of birth with a shiny sticker seal, only to find that there was no assurance. It was not authentic. It was not legitimate. The author of Hebrews, in everything he said in these 10, cha ten chapters, he does not want these people to be fined in the end to have had a false assurance that what they thought they had spiritually, that they don't have the wrong material, the absence of something true when it ultimately matters. And so this morning, his concern is for gospel confidence, that we persevere in a faith that will not disappoint us in the end. So two simple points this morning 
I want us to see, the author of Hebrews really wants us to see what we actually have as Christians who profess faith in Jesus. And then he wants us to know what we need to do to keep having it, to not be at risk of apostasy, to not be at risk of letting go of it. So two very important points in these few verses. The first, what we have. He says in verses 19 to 22, we have a great high priest. We have in Jesus a great high priest. He then says, because we have him, if you have him by faith, we can have great confidence. We can have great assurance, not in ourselves, but in that high priest. We can have confidence by his bloodshed, he says in verse 19, through his body that is ascended. So the first thing we can have as Christians, he says, is great confidence, assurance. Now, as we were singing our opening hymn this morning, beautiful echoing of this truth. We sang in the third stanza this line of, O joy that seekest me through pain, I cannot close my heart to thee. I trace the rainbow through the rain and feel the promise is not vain. That morn, that day to come, shall tearless be. Well, it's a, it's a nice rainy day today. And, and parents, maybe this is good to talk to your children about over lunch today. What does that hymn and that song mean when it says that the Lord seeks us through our pain and suffering and hardship? And in the midst of that, all we can do sometimes is trace the rainbow through the rain. That is a beautiful poetic way of saying all I can do in the midst of hardship and suffering is remember those promises of God. It's rainy, it's stormy, it's ugly, but God has made promises that our present circumstances cannot overcome. That's tracing the rainbow, remembering the promises of God through the midst of rain and storm and wind. That's the great confidence that you and I have. It is in the promise of God. And we've heard a number of them in our scriptures and our songs this morning. In our reflection, we saw, be confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Our confidence is in God's promises and what He has always been doing since creation. We can have great confidence. We can have assurance. It's by His blood shed, which was in fulfillment to His promise, and through His body ascended, that the passage says He tore through the curtain, the veil and barrier that kept us from the holy presence of God, Jesus, the Lamb of God, we can be assured that that veil is torn and take away, taken away, and we can be in the presence of God. The author, you see, is using this language of body and blood. He's done it repeatedly. And remember, this is the fifth, sixth, seventh time he has referenced Jesus as a priest, as an ultimate priest, 
as the one true great high priest. And so he's using all this priestly language, this imagery, this theology that the Hebrew people were very familiar with to show them that God is faithful to his promises. Jesus is the Lamb of God, and by his body and blood, we have confidence that our sin problem has truly been dealt with. So that priestly language, the priestly imagery, the priestly theology is so that you and I can have confidence. There's a very real sense in which we need to think like Hebrews in this sense. We've got to understand all those images and symbols to really grasp the confidence that they're intended to give us. He goes on from there and says that in Jesus, not only do we have a great confidence, but we can have a clean conscience. We can have a clean conscience that though we are guilty of sin, every one of us, though we are guilty in him, we are guilt-free. Guilty, but guilt-free because of Jesus. Or as Martin Luther said, simultaneously sinful, but justified because of Jesus. We can have a clean conscience. You might remember in the passage last week, chapter 10, verse 2, the author said that Old Testament animal sacrifice did not have the power to cleanse our conscience. He said the, if they did, if the Old Testament animal sacrifice had power to cleanse us, the worshipers, he says, quote, would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. Which is his way of saying every Old Testament worshiper, though offering a sacrifice, turned and walked away knowing I am still a sinner and that animal did nothing. But he says, you can have a clean conscience because it wasn't an animal that died for your sins. It was the perfect Son of God who has power to save. So you can have a clean conscience, he says. Now this is probably a good moment to sit on that and to think for a moment. Because I do wonder as a pastor, do you feel the truth of the assurance of pardon that we hear in worship every week? Or is it just an item in the bulletin that we kind of go through the motions with? The truth is this. Most people think that the highlight in the worship service is the sermon because it gets the most time. But liturgically, do you know what the highlight of the worship service is? And what you should show up knowing that it is? It's the assurance of pardon given after we confess our sins. I remember being in seminary in, in St. Louis before I ever heard that or ever even thought about it. It was the first church I had been in that, that liturgically, the, the worship sought to be very clear about the gospel. That when a sinner confesses his sins her sins, their sins, God responds with a good word of assurance of pardon to those who trust Jesus. So do you ever even feel that in worship? Or do you show up just getting this part over with? All right, all right now, okay, now I'm going to pay attention. I would hope 
I would hope that as a congregation, we want to be there for the call to worship because God's calling us to confess our sins. And we're going to confess our sins, really, truly confess our sins. And we are going to sit on the edge of our pews for that assurance of pardon. To be reminded that what is spoken in Jesus is true. It is real. It is beautiful. It redefines you to stand up and offer yourself as a sacrifice in the offertory. And then to hear from his word and be fed and encouraged in the gospel. And then to go back out those doors and to go live for him the Christian life in the week ahead. That's the rhythm of worship. That's why we need to be reminded of gospel confidence, of the assurance of pardon, that it's real, that it's true, that it's legitimate. And then thirdly, because all that is true, there is a great confidence to be had by you if you trust Jesus. There is a clean conscience because of the assurance of pardon that you should have. And then thirdly, all that's true because in Him we have a real Cleansing, a spiritual cleansing that is true, that is real. In verse 22, he says that we have our hearts sprinkled. That is the ceremonial splashing, the the marking and designating as being cleansed. In the Old Testament, that was done with hyssop and the, the dipping of the branch in blood and the sprinkling of people that they would receive undeservedly the marking of God, the blessing of God, the touch of God in their life, and know that it was real and true. In the New Testament, we see this in baptism, the promises of God applied to His people. And whether Old Testament or New Testament, the condition of all is you've got to persevere in that faith to which you've been marked. That's what the Lord is saying and doing. And the author of Hebrews is reminding them, your hearts have been sprinkled. That truth has been applied to you. Now persevere. Know that you're ceremonially splashed and marked. Now go live faithfully, persevering in that faith. And he goes on and says, having bodies that are washed That too is ceremonial language. You might remember in the Old Covenant, there was a a wash basin that was a part of the worship, the entering into the presence of God. And the priests were to wash their hands and their feet to symbolically symbolize, we need a washing, we need a washing, we're sinners. And the author of Hebrews is taking that imagery. This is again, priestly in nature. The Hebrews would have understood it. It rolls right by us. But he says, you've been sprinkled. You've been washed by the body and the blood of Jesus. He's saying it's real, y'all. It's not hypothetical. It's real. And if you believe it's real, it changes everything. It changes everything. It changes the way you think about yourself the way you think about others, the way you think about the world in which you live. So here's my question. Has not only the assurance of pardon sunk in for you in your Christian life, but have you seen that it's real and it changes everything? Okay, for this week's uh, example of an illustration that doesn't work, 
Um, I just can't help but think about a scene in a movie, and um, probably two of you have seen it. So this is why, good luck, Paul. Um, so in, I think it was 1986, I'm 16 years old, and a movie comes out. And, and you know how at certain seasons of your life, things kind of, uh, well, you just enjoy them, and they end up shaping your personality and your sense of humor. Okay, point of admission. So the movie Three Amigos, just love that movie. I just love that movie. And um, I'm not going to say you need to watch it. But I'll say this, that the entire premise of the movie is you have three American movie stars who are... Um, oh, no, I didn't write it down, so I can't think of how to put this. They are gunfighters. They are Mexican gunfighters. But they're just as white and pale as they can be. And they wear these glitzy outfits and uniforms. And uh, the, the entire movie is based on the theme of miscommunication, misunderstanding. A telegraph is misread. It's great for English illustrations. Um, it's shortened for money reasons. And, and these three movie stars in America are hired to come to Mexico to save a little village that is being plundered by El Wapo, the bad guy. And um, they think they're being called into Mexico to put on a show, to do their thing, to ride around with their cap guns, shooting and pretending to be real. And this is taking too long. But the climax of the movie and the point of the illustration is this. They think they're performing for cameras, though there are never cameras on. And they're in the middle of a gunfight with an actual Mexican, I don't know what to call it, cartel, gang, uh, the bad guys, until one of them gets shot. Lucky Day is his name. He gets shot. And they're riding around shooting their cap guns in the air. And Lucky Day gets up, and he's being patted off by the other amigos. You remember this? And they hit his shoulder, and he's like, ow, ow, ow. And he sees that he's bleeding. And it dawns on him. Somebody shot me with real bullets. So he goes up to the henchman and says, give me that gun. And he gives him the gun and he opens it up and he pulls out a real bullet. And he says, great, real bullets. And then it dawns on him. These are real bad guys. And so he, uh, he puts the bullet in his pocket and he goes back to the other two amigos. Now here comes the illustration. He goes back to the other two amigos who thinks they're putting on a show and he gets teary and he says, um, it's real. And they're like, what? He says, it's real. It's, this, is all, this is all real. They're going to kill us. And Martin Short, Ned Needlander, says, what am I doing in Mexico? And Lucky Day says, well, I've been shot already. And everything about their life changes. Because they realize what we had thought was true was not true. This is all real. It redefines everything. Cliffhanger, I'll leave you there to go see how the movie ends. It's fantastic. But I, it, it's just cemented in 16-year-old Paul Patrick's mind of this turning point 
where everything goes from fun and games and shooting guns up in the air. Youth group is fun. People are fun. And then the gospel comes to bear telling you that you're a sinner and that there is one Savior of sin. And you realize this is either real or it's not. This is either true or it's not. And it redefines everything. So what say you? What we're hearing about the great priest, that there is one who can atone for sin, and it's not you, it's not me. Is it real? Is it true? Or are we just shooting our plastic guns in the air, coming to worship every week, feeling good about ourselves, good Christian people? It's real, y'all. It's true. Your hearts have been sprinkled. Your bodies have been washed by a great priest who will never fail you. His sprinkling, his washing, it's all real. Therefore, there are things that you and I must do to persevere in our faith. And he gives us three things, and I'm going to close with this. These are important. He says in verse 22, Since it's all true that Jesus is our great high priest, let us draw near, let us hold fast, and let us consider how to spur others on in their faith. So very quickly, he says, Let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with true worship. Listen, if the gospel is true, if it's real then this hour together once a week is critical. You need to draw near to God in public worship. You need, need to be reminded of the gospel confidence that we have. Your private worship outside of this hour of public worship, it becomes critically important to draw near to God. Why? Because it's in those settings of worship that faith is constructed. It's built up in us. The opposite of drawing near is to withdraw from afar. And you know in your own life, when you withdraw from the people of God, when you withdraw from fellowship with the people of God, when you withdraw from worship, you're not going to do well on your own. You won't be constructing faith. You'll see your faith deconstructed. And so he's cautioning. Draw near to God. Worship matters. It will build up your faith and restore your soul. Secondly, he says... Let us hold fast to our confession of faith, to our hope in Jesus. We need to hold fast. Rick Phillips says this in his commentary on the book of Hebrews. He says, nothing is more important than what we believe. Nothing so shapes the way we live. Nothing is more important to the Christian life than the content of the faith we profess. Therefore, we are not to be silent... We are not to compromise the truth we have received. We are to hold unswervingly to the gospel truths and promises that are our only hope. You've got to hold on to what you have professed. I've got to hold on to what I have professed. Otherwise, the opposite of holding on is what? It's to turn loose. It's to let go. And the author had already used that very language in chapter 2 of verse 1 to say, don't let loose, don't drift away, don't slip away like a boat from the harbor that is unchained, that is untethered. 
He says we must pay more careful attention to what we've heard so that we do not drift or slip away into unbelief. So you and I need to hold fast to our confession. And it will be tempting to let go. It will be tempting to turn loose. And because it's so tempting, this is the third thing he applies. He says we need to consider how we may spur one another on in love and good deeds and to not stop meeting together. Some of you are familiar with horses. We had horses when I was about 10, 12 years old. Diablo and Pistol have the faintest memories, but I do remember what it's like to get on a big animal and as a little boy somehow to be in charge, to be able to direct the animal with a bridle and reins. We did not have spurs, um, but I do remember learning to just take your heel and push it in the side of the animal, the, the horse, and it would spur the animal forward, right? And then you could direct it with the reins. Some of you are very familiar with this. The author is saying we need to spur one another on in love and good deeds and in meeting together. Um, it, we need to stir up in one another love and good deeds. We need to provoke one another towards love and good deeds. We need to stimulate one another towards love and good deeds and meeting together. Those are all synonyms for the word that he uses. But I want to emphasize at least two things. Number one, we're not doing those things to ourselves. He's telling us to do it for others. Which means we should have eyes for who around me would God use me to stir and to spur in love and good deeds to encourage to keep meeting together. It's not about me, it's about thinking of others. Again, Richard Phillips in his commentary says this, We are our brother's keeper. We must give thought to how we can be of help to other believers. We should consider the impact our presence and participation can have in the life of one another. How God might be at work through us, just as He has used others in our own lives. We should even be willing to sacrifice our time, our preferences, and even our convenience for the good of others. We are to give thought, to consider the condition of those the Lord has put around us. And if we're not doing this, then we're nothing more than takers, mere consumers of those who care for us without any offering for the well-being of others. Do you hear what he's saying? The Christian life is supposed to very much be about now who has the Lord put within my reach to love and to care for? But we naturally and sinfully and in our culture, we think about us. We think about me, 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 me. But we're to be spurring and stirring up others to do well. To not give up meeting together. To participate in love and in good deeds. And you know, this happens around us all the time. And it happens at GPC. Some of you try to reach out to one another and go to lunch, go to coffee, go for a walk. Those are great things. That's what we need to do to spur and stir one another. We want to promote love and good deeds. Great time to highlight that on February the 2nd, 
on Thursday, not this week, but next, we're going to have a men's fellowship. And we're going to have someone come in and talk to us about ministry to widows and how we can be more intentional with our youth, with the men of our church, with our whole congregation to minister to people. We're going to try to spur one another on towards love and good deeds in that particular category. So men, for that men's fellowship, ages 12 and up, be there. That's our effort to spur you and to stir you. We do it in numerous ways. We're to encourage one another. And and I need to wrap this up, but I'll say this. If you have eyes to consider who you can spur and stir, you should also have a sensitivity and an appreciation when somebody's trying to spur and stir you. If somebody does invite you to coffee or to lunch, you should go. The Lord might be using them to encourage you or to correct you, to bring instruction to you. Because He says that's what we're supposed to be doing. Now, we don't see it often as spurring. We see it as spurning. We don't want to be spurned. But if the spirit of Hebrews is correction and love and believing that God works through one another, there ought to be a whole lot more encouragement, a whole lot of meeting together because every one of us, pastors included, need to be stirred and spurred and encouraged in all these things. Because without these, every individual is at risk of drifting, of falling away. And that is his primary concern. Okay, we'll conclude with this. R.C. Sproul says this. My confidence in my preservation, the preservation of my faith, is not in my ability to persevere. My confidence rests in the power of Christ to sustain me with His grace. It is confidence that by the power of His intercession for us as a priest, He is going to bring us safely through. Remember, the threat, what the author is speaking to the Hebrews, is that threat of apostasy, of drifting away. It's a call to perseverance and faith. But the good news of the sermon this morning and to the book of Hebrews is you and I can try as hard as we want to do everything right But ultimately, our perseverance of faith, it's not left to our own strength. It's in the hands of Jesus. And His church will never fail. Listen to John chapter 2, verse 10. It says this. I'm sorry, verse 27. It's still wrong. John 10, 27. My sheep, Jesus says... Listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. He says it twice. They didn't have exclamation points. That's an exclamation point, saying it two times in a row. No one can take His people out of His hand, out of the Father's hand. 
There's your promise of perseverance. The question is, are you in the Father's hand? And how can you know? Those three same things apply. You can know. You can know. When you are characterized by love, by abiding in Him, holding fast to Him through the sufferings of this life, and by spurring others, not giving up meeting together. That's how you can know. You can see Him at work in you. You would abandon this and give this up long ago if it wasn't for His Spirit at work in you, if it wasn't for His Spirit at work in me. Let's pray that He will continue to work in that same way. Our Father and our God, we thank You for the beauty of Your Word, the call to perseverance, and the promise of preservation. So Lord, would You do that in us? Would You enable us to be a people characterized by love and by holding fast to our profession of hope. And Lord, even considering how we may spur one another on in the truth of the faith. Do this, Lord, we ask and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.